Hi, everyone, and welcome to this episode of Base Weight, an outdoor podcast about the things we carry. I'm your host, Shannon, and this week on the podcast, we are speaking with John Middleton, otherwise known as the Camping Astronomer. His delightful YouTube channel combines astrophotography with hiking and wild camping. His aim is not only to entertain, but to show us that you don't need to live near wilderness areas or buy a ton of expensive gear to enjoy a night under the stars. Welcome to the podcast, John. Thank you very much. And thank you very much for inviting me. I'm, uh, I'm delighted to, to be here. My first ever podcast. <laughs> Yay! I'm and, super uh, excited. Yeah, it, should be good. it should be good. Yeah, yeah. It's, um, Yay. I'm looking forward to it. I've been watching your channel for a little while and I, I love it. It's very, very uh, relaxing, peaceful, super fun and informative. Can you tell us a little Good. bit about your channel and how it came about? Yeah, I I started it in lockdown, as I think loads of people decided to start doing YouTubing in, yeah. in lockdown. Um, but the the idea had had been in my head for around a year. and um the the reason i was a bit hesitant to kind of do it earlier was i i thought that i'd probably only get like 50 subscribers or something and um you, yeah because you, you obviously when you go on youtube you see all these people with like 50,000 subscribers and stuff i know so i, I thought it, it was kind of doomed to to failure and i, I never really was brave enough to do it i even came up with a, a name for it originally it was the channel was going to be called the astro camper oh. and i thought this was a great this is a great name but when i went into youtube and typed in the astro camper i got loads of videos coming up about some camper van over in the us and oh. i don't know where there's a, a a camper van in the US that's called the Astro or something. Oh, so thought, I'll have hey. to check that out. <laughs> <laughs> so I thought, hey, I've got to come up with a new name. And eventually I came up with the with the camping astronomer. And I like that. I, I decided to go ahead with it because like everyone else in lockdown, we're all stuck with nowhere to go and nothing to do. So mm. I was looking a lot more on, on YouTube videos and things. And in doing that, I realized that there's a vast number of channels on there that have got 100 subscribers or less. And mm -hmm. so I thought, well, really, there's no real excuse not to put a channel up and, and see what happens. Um, so the kind of rationale behind my channel really was also... Um, driven a little bit by the lockdown thing because the yeah typically a lot of the wild camping channels and stuff that the, they're all based up in the lake district and the peak district and scotland where it's easy to do wild camping and where i live in the crowded southeast of england um it's not so easy but i had been doing it and it kind of dawned on me that everybody's trapped indoors and maybe I could show people that when when everything opened up again that you don't have to be in the wilderness to do wild camping it is possible to do it in area the highly populated southeast um but I also yeah. realized that 
there's an awful lot of camping, walking and camping channels. And so I wanted to make mine a bit different. And I've been doing some astrophotography. And I thought, well, maybe I can combine those two. And I couldn't find anybody who kind of combined what I did. So I thought, well, that's what I'll do. That's <laughs> so initially you. I made that's a couple your spot. Of that's my little bit. Yeah. And I did a couple of little test videos in the back garden. <laughs> Because um, at the time we were like camping in the back garden and stuff because people were desperate oh, yeah. to get outdoors. Yeah. And so the garden camping became dead popular. So I did a couple of test videos and just using my phone, you know, figured out how to edit them again using my phone. And then I thought, well, really, there's nothing to stop me getting my channel going. So, um, yeah, I kind of off I went, really. <laughs> I love that. And one of the things that I was really pleased about because when I started the channel my daughter was absolutely horrified she was like um 17 at the time or 16 17 was horrified she thought, well she thought I'd get lots of haters you, you know like all the teenage oh. kids that, that they're all doing these lifestyle vlogging sort of yes and they get negativity so she thought that I'd just be like you know inundated with haters and stuff and what I found in reality was it's completely the opposite. Yeah. The supportiveness of everybody. You know, you, you just scour around and find all the people who are starting out like you who've got less than 100 subscribers and you start encouraging them on their videos and then they do the same to you. And, mm -hmm. yeah, there's this whole, like, community of supportive people out there. Uh, and, uh, yeah, I... I think I've had like one negative comment and that's it. So, um, yeah. yeah. So if anybody's thinking about doing a YouTube channel on anything, I would say just have a go and see what happens. Isn't that amazing? Yeah, you just got to put yourself out there and try it. That's, that's it. That's right, yeah. Does your daughter watch yeah. your channel? She does, actually. She watches it, yeah. She does. <laughs> so, I have a 13-year-old and she does not watch my channel. <laughs> No, well, no. Uh, what my daughter, she subsequently went to university and kind of moved away. And um, I said to her, oh, well, you, you know, if ever you like you know, missing home and stuff, you j just watch a couple of my videos and things. And, and that's what she does. So um, she's awesome. not brave enough to con or anything like that. And I don't think she even subscribes. <laughs> <laughs> no. Thanks uh, for your support, when, when kid. I'm, yeah, well, when I got to like 990-odd subscribers or something, I, I said to her, well, why don't you be my thousandth subscriber? But uh, Show but dad no. some support. <laughs> <laughs> but, but at least she watches and she quite likes them as well. So, uh, yeah, and she's now happy that, you know, I get nice comments and stuff and, and not go. haters. That, that's not part of my little... And I think that's the the niche little world that we all live in in YouTube, I don't think gets many haters. Certainly not at the size no. of channels that we are, you know, so, um, yeah. Yes, yes. But it's um, good. I enjoy doing it. It's good. The, um, the channels that, that my daughter watches, I've tried to sit down and, like, watch them with her, you know, just to kind of see what she's looking at. Yeah. <laughs> I'm like, okay, I must be way too old or I completely missed the boat because some of these channels, I'm like, that's it? That 
they're they're playing video video games and talking about it as they're playing like that's the the most popular the, thing she likes to watch yeah the, the, that yeah my my daughter luckily she doesn't do gaming and stuff but i know that's a really popular it is she seems to watch um just like lifestyle yeah vloggers um that somehow i don't know how you know that they, they, they get like five hundred thousand subscribers and a quarter of a million views just about what they're doing in their everyday, everyday isn't life. that crazy <laughs> it's absolutely crazy but i mean good for them they've they've found a way to circumvent I you know, the regular yeah. life that, that we all knew coming up, just, you know, you get a job in your teens and you're off to the races, you work, work, work. That, <laughs> that, 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 that's it. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, yes. I mean, I don't know how they do it, but they just seem to touch on something that's dead popular and off they, off they go. But I think there's yep. a lot that, you know, you, we only see the ones that have got like half a it, million subscribers yeah. and stuff. So I suspect that thousands and thousands that, that haven't but um but those are the sorts of ones that my daughter watches for sure <laughs> yes yeah um i've enjoyed watching your channel for a multitude of reasons not the least of which is the peaceful nature of your videos the wild camps on the hills the awesome shots of the sky um which came first for you the hiking and the camping or the astrophotography uh no the hiking by a long way um yeah I guess I started doing some hiking probably in my early 20s. Um, I used to go on the, the local hills, which are called the South Downs here. They're, they're like lowish hills. And then I moved on to the, the Brecon Beacons and then the lake, which is in South Wales. So I do a lot there still. And the yeah. Lake District. And... Then I went to Everest Base Camp when I was in my mid twenties. Wow! And I thought, oh yeah, I quite, I quite like this, and uh, that got me the bug really. So since then, I've walked the Tour of Mont Blanc and I've been to the Pyrenees. Uh, wow! I went about every four years. I'd do a big trip. So Everest was a big trip. I went to. Um, Chile and Argentina to do some hiking in the Andes, like sort of four years oh, later. Oh, wow. And like four years after that, I went to Tanzania and did some walking there. And in, in the middle bits, I was doing like Tour of Mont Blanc and Pyrenees and, and that sort of thing. And in between all of that, I was um, mountain walking in, uh, in Scotland a bit and in the UK. So but it, it all kind of started in in the twenty in my twenties really, whereas yeah. um, astrophot astrophotography didn't really kick off until I was in my forties, I suppose. Um, oh wow! But yeah, I, I mean the, the the trouble with um, like in mountain walking where I live is is I'm a long way from the mountains. <laughs> <laughs> it's um, you know I, I'll do a 200 mile drive to go to the Brecon Beacons, which are my nearest yeah. kind of mountain area, do a walk and then come back again, uh, just to get yeah. like a fix of like my little mountain fix, if you like. Oh, um, I understand that. Found, yeah, it's, a, it, it, it's just good. It's a really tiring day, but it's good to do. But what I realised with the wild camping was um, the South Downs, which is like half an hour's drive from my house, 
if you can find the spots there to wild camp, it, you don't have to be in the mountains to do that. You still get the lovely sunsets and the, the views off the South Downs are very nice in their own way. Um, yeah. they're, they're kind of much softer, obviously, than, than, than mountain stuff. But um, so, yeah, so I was doing that just to get, get some wild camping in, really, because what I realised was, um, and lockdown taught me this, was I'm nearly 60 now. So I figure maybe I've got 10 more active years or when you can do this sort of thing. Yeah. And then when you get something like the the lockdown comes along, suddenly you've lost an entire year. And I was just always just hanging on, oh, I'll go camping in the lakes or walking in the lakes or whatever. Mm-hmm. And I wasn't trying to build it into a more regular thing, whereas no, now I do, because uh, the same thing could happen again next year. And before I know where I am, I'm I'm not able to do it anymore. So it's right. kind of making the best of the environment that's around you. And yes. you still get like 90% of the, the experience out of it, really. I think that's uh, the one good thing that COVID and, and lockdown really did show us is that you don't need to go that far to to get no. outside and, and enjoy nature and stuff. And I also think it kind of instilled in us a, a bit of, uh, oh, I better hurry up and, and get started on the things I want to do. Yes, the, 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 that's exactly it. You can keep putting things off till tomorrow. Right. And yeah. it can all be taken away from you at the drop of a hat. You know? so, yes. So, uh, yeah. So you, you, you have to bang things down as, as best you can. Um, yes. We, you know, within whatever limitations you, your life happens to impose on you. So. Yes. So we kind of touched on um, when you came to hiking. Did you do hiking and camping as a child with your family? Did you guys do that, you know, when you were growing up? Uh, not not very much. Um, my dad used to like going for a walk and he used to go again on the South Downs. Um, mm. And as a, like a 10 year old kid, you'd kind of get dragged along. Um, yeah. Yeah. I, I can't say it particularly sort of struck me at the time as something that I really wanted to do. Um, so it, it, it all sat in the background. My youth and, and well, youth, lifelong uh activity is cycling actually and um w by the time i was 16 i was uh, racing bikes and stuff and and so that that wow. was kind of dominating my <clears throat> um my youth and early adulthood um and then the other hobbies kind of came along more in my 20s but i i think or i often feel that you you don't really know who you are till you're about 25 uh, and then at that point, you you tend to be a bit comfortable in your skin, and you you more or less know what your hobbies are going to be, and and that sort of thing. So, um, so I'd say for for camping, yeah, I wasn't doing family camping holidays or or anything. I mean, my camping really it started off wild camping, uh, like in little one man tents and stuff, yeah. and that's how it stayed. And then when my daughter was born, it morphed into family camping. Yeah. Uh, then we got a little VW camper van, uh, oh. like a 1970s one, which we had for a few years, and, and that was good. Oh, fun. Then my daughter gets uh, 
too old to want to go like sleep in a roof space in a in a little VW camper. So the family camping kind of tapered off, and and then I kind of reverted back to my roots of of wild camping. Yeah. So uh, yeah, but the, the quick answer is no. I didn't do much of it as a kid. Actually, <laughs> it developed in in later life, early adulthood. How did you get started with the with astronomy and astrophotography? Like, how does one stumble in into that? Yeah, that I mean that that, that was a bit of a um a, an oddball thing. But we uh, something like fifteen years ago, we every January there used to be a program. It used to appear for a week every night in January, and it was called I think Stargazing Live. And oh. it was pre presented by a, um, a, a guy called Dr. Brian Cox, who's very famous over here, um, mm -hmm. not least because apart from being an astrophysicist, he was the uh, drummer in a 80s pop band here called D. Reed. Uh, they were I'm going to look them band. up now. How, what were they called? Yeah. Uh, D D Ream was how they were, were known, but you, if you probably, I don't know whether the D is separated from the Ream or whether it's just like Dream. I'm gonna um, I'm gonna look him you, up. Yeah, so yeah, if if you look for Dr. Brian Cox, you you should okay. find him. Funnily enough, um, Brian May out of Queen was also yep. an astrophysicist. But anyway, hey, so this hey. program was hosted by by Brian Cox. And I happened to watch one of them, and it was all like what was going on in the sky that night. And what they wanted you to do was to basically go outside and, and look up. And they told you, like, where Jupiter was going to be and where the Orion Nebula was, which is like a mm -hmm. big, famous, say, big. It's a, it's a well-known uh, astronomical target. Mm -hmm. And so I went out and I thought, blimey, I, I know what I'm actually looking at. Right. And I watched the rest, rest of the, the week's shows and then borrowed a telescope, just a cheap, like, almost like one of your Walmart type scopes that, that right. you have in the States off of a colleague of mine. And <clears throat> whilst it was, this wasn't a brilliant scope, I could look at the Orion Nebula through it and look at the Andromeda Galaxy and wow. I was like gobsmacked that, that you could see these things. And so the, I, I quickly bought a slightly better telescope. And for two years, I was doing visual astronomy. And the, the thing with visual astronomy is that you see all these pictures in books or you watch my YouTube videos and you see a picture of a galaxy or a, a nebula or something. And this isn't what you see through a telescope. The, the planets look more or less like you would expect them to. But mm -hmm. the galaxies and things, nebulae, they're like ultra fuzzy, extremely faint objects. Um, uh -huh. And some people get put off astronomy because of that, because they get a telescope and they expect to see, you know, what it looks like, what the, the pictures on the box look like. like. The final product exactly and that's not what it's like visually you have to take photographs to do that and huh. uh so that's i think kind of you you sort of when you do visual astronomy you, you kind of want 
the show your friends and family what, what you're looking at. Right. And so a good way of doing that is to sort of drift into astrophotography, which is a right um, rabbit hole of, of complexity and stuff. But you can keep it relatively simple. Um, so, yeah, so I sort of after a few years of doing visual, I drifted into astrophotography um, and the prevailing uh, thoughts or, or knowledge was that you you have to have very expensive kit to to do it and you don't you, you know you you do if you want to create fantastic photos mm -hmm. um the the pictures that i put up just for reference would be counted in the astrophotography world as mediocre <laughs> Are you serious people who don't do it yeah people who don't do it look at it and go man that's incredible yes but people who are seriously into it yeah my photos are are, are, are rubbish basically they're snobbery but in the again, astro uh, photography world <laughs> no no not not really it's just um it's possible to to create incredible images yeah but all i'm really interested in doing is keeping myself happy and, right. and I, you know i know that uh you know, if I show my pictures to somebody that's not a super keen astrophotographer, they're completely blown <clears> away <throat> by them. Yeah. Uh, and and this is, again, you know, one of the parts of my channel, really, is I, I often say, look, I'm not trying to take pictures that um, are going to win astrophotography picture of the day or anything. I'm mm -hmm. trying to take a picture primarily that pleases me. Yeah. And if I like it, it's automatically a good picture. Right. And there's always people who are better than you at anything, you know, whether it's, you know, when I was a, a bike racer, I think I only ever won one race. And that was because the people who used to beat me didn't turn up that day. Like, you know, but, and, but even if I was winning, there's always somebody better than you until True. you get to being world champion. Yeah. And the same applies to astrophotography or, or, or any sort of activity that you might take part in it is good to strive to improve yourself <clears throat> excuse me and, and of course you know that's a good thing but the thing is is not to get too hung up in what you're doing by what everybody else is doing yes. because that's just a part of the dissatisfaction and giving up and, and i think that applies to any anything you know whether it's um camping or hiking or bike racing or, or astrophotography you know you, you've got to be happy with what you're doing and accept make small steps forward and and be happy with that and, and then you're going to be satisfied I think with what you're doing and and really that's where I am with with astrophotography I've got kind of got to a point now where um I haven't spent vast sums of money on kit but you know it can get relatively expensive i suppose my astrophotography rig probably is worth about two thousand pounds say or, or, or yeah if, if i mention money we'll just say pounds and dollars are roughly the same yes they are yeah. um and, and that's considered budget but you can do it i've done it for a lot less money than that and still come up with pictures that, that, that are good so yeah you don't spend shed loads of money certainly when you're starting out um, yeah. Use what you've got, and I think we'll maybe talk a bit later on on how you can take pictures of like the 
northern lights and stuff because you're going to the hebrides aren't you yeah so we'll, we'll talk about which is another good good place to go that I, i've been to the isles of harris and lewis and sky mm -hmm. well you've been to sky yourself haven't you so the, yeah but those are the hebrides i've done um when you go out on a wild camp with the aim of getting some really good shots what is your typical telescope and camera equipment setup? What do you bring with you? Right. Okay. So in an ideal world, I would take a solid tripod and then you, you, you put a mount on top of that, which tracks the stars. Because what mm -hmm. you're trying to do is take long exposure photographs, like one minute or two minutes or something like that. And because the Earth's rotating, it effectively means that when you look at the sky, it's moving above you. Right. And when you take an exposure of, say, a minute, what happens is the stars come out like streaks. So you, you don't get a very good picture. So ideally, you need a tracking mount. And then you hmm. put something like a, a DSLR camera on top of that. So that's all well and good. And... The, the trouble is that the sort of lightest setup that I've got that would do that weighs six or seven kilos. Wow. And when you're parting about 15 kilos already, that's just too much. It's a lot. So the, well, the best way of getting nice astro pictures when you're camping, and also this is also the best way of taking your very first astrophotography pictures if you something you want to, try is just to take a dslr camera a basic, you don't need a posh one just the basic one with a kit lens on it say 18 to 50 millimeters okay plonk that on top of a lightweight tripod and take an exposure of the sky of maybe 15 seconds or so when you set your your lens to 18 millimeters if you take shortish exposures like 15 seconds you don't tend to see the the star trailing because you've got a nice wild wide field of view i, I didn't realize any of this really and one day i was um i'd actually taken my telescope to a dark sky site when i was doing visual astronomy and i was just perched on this cliff top looking at stuff in the milky way and this lady walked past me with her dog and obviously they want to look through the telescope which is fairly common <laughs> and it was pretty dark at the time and i said to her what, what are you doing walking like a woman on the road walking in the dark yeah what at, you doing at, there this time of night <laughs> and she said well i'm doing a milky way walk i says well what's a milky way walk and she says well i'm a professional photographer and i'm taking photographs of the milky way just with my camera I said, oh, that's something I'd really like to do. And she said, oh, it's mm -hmm. dead easy, and I'll show you how to do it. So she got her stuff out and put it on the on her little tripod and stuff, pointed south where the, the Milky Way was at that time of year. And she just took a picture, and she says, look, I'll, I'll show you what it comes out like on the back of the camera without doing any, you know, Photoshopping and stuff. And no messing with it? I, I, yeah i couldn't believe what i was seeing oh my gosh and so i said right what settings are you using so she says <clears> oh like a f 2.8 or something and a 
a 20 second exposure an 18 millimeters set on her lens and an iso of like 1600 so i, I couldn't wait to have a go so um, yes yeah, so I, I had a go after that and got this beautiful picture of the milky way rising above the sea oh, and wow. this is something you can do with any dslr camera and that's how to get started in astrophotography really and so when i'm camping and i want to take a star shot the first problem is nearly every time i go camping it's cloudy and raining yeah <laughs> but i'm not gonna on, say on, on, you get clear nights <laughs> on the odd occasions where that doesn't happen I kind of like to take a picture of an illuminated tent with the stars and, and the sky above it. And you can have like the arch of the Milky Way and stuff. And so that's yes. just done with a DSLR. So no special kit whatsoever. A kit, a cheap lens doesn't have to be a posh lens set to the widest that you can do. Over here, the standard kit lens is like 15, uh, sorry. Excuse me. 18 to 50 millimeters so you just okay. set it to to 18 and take a 10 15 second shot pointing in the okay. direction that maybe you know the milky way's in or, or whatever and if you've got your iso huh. set to 1600 or or um 3200 you will get a good picture come out of it and then you can faff about with it on your phone if you want to and change the the exposure yeah. slightly and the contrast and stuff to to really bring out the detail but you, you can yeah. see the milky way in in the, the unmodified shot that, that you take with, with with your camera that is um, amazing so th this is what i do when i when i go um wild camping now i i, I it's too much of a drag to i can't carry extra five or six kilos on I've got a rucksack full of wine and food and stuff. So, right. you know, the important things. The important things. You need a, a a dog, put some stuff in the dog's pack or a, a little yeah, llama I mean, a or anyway. something. I mean, the, 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 this is it. A dog would be great. I, I mean, Get a big I, I dog. Joke, <laughs> yeah. I, I often joke to my family that you, if you've got a dog, your YouTube videos go through the roof like, like yes. when you're doing wild camping and stuff um yes. so I, I need to borrow a dog from somewhere i think <laughs> yeah we used to have a, a king charles spaniel and um, oh yeah i've gone all around the lakes once or twice but i've killed a lake so i, I think yeah she she wasn't really a, a dog that wanted or, or needed a, a, a lot of exercise um but yeah. apparently dogs like Harry. i did have a a little doggy backpack and at one point i had a yep. little um doggy camera on her head like so oh me too <laughs> i had a harness um, that had camera on it which is always nice and it the dog's Loved like it. you mm -hmm. but apparently dogs like carrying a little bit of a load because yes they almost they know that they've got something to do if you like you know it's peculiar they have but, a job um, they have got a job yeah exactly exactly yeah yeah, yeah i have um I've had a lot of mastiffs and dogs derived from mastiffs over the years and and they originally mm. were drovers dogs so they they had jobs yeah. and purpose and and yeah and I would get yeah. questions like oh my gosh is that okay to be putting a backpack on I'm like this dog outweighs me it's absolutely fine to put a little pack on it with 
they can carry their food and their toys and and whatever other little thing I can put in there. Like, yeah, they're okay. <laughs> so I could go on. I could go on a tangent about dogs, man. Um, yeah, this for sure. I I really like how you promote using what you have and what you can afford, um, whether it be camping or photographing the stars. What are your recommendations for someone just getting into astronomy and astrophotography? Okay, so yeah, if you the the first thing is like as I've touched on before, astrophotography can be a mind-blowingly expensive and frustrating hobby so the the best thing to do really is to start off with visual astronomy and if it's not really your bag doing visual astronomy you know you're keen to get onto the astrophotography what all you need to do is get a pair of 10 by 50 binoculars and uh, you can see an amazing amount in the sky just using really those binoculars oh you can see the andromeda galaxy and all sorts of things through through those binoculars i had no idea once you, yeah you, well people don't really think about getting a pair of binoculars and, and looking up at the uh, at the sky no now um, i'm gonna <laughs> if you want to see things like the moons of jupiter or the uh, you know, the bands on it or the rings on on saturn yes please then you really need a telescope okay but even with a telescope, unless you've got one that's absolutely ginormous, uh, a planet like Jupiter looks, in terms of size, roughly like a pea held at two metres distance from you. So if you imagine looking at really? a pea, that's the size of, of, of the planet. You, you do huh. with practice, you kind of get your eye in and you start seeing all the details and things. The first time you look through a telescope at the moon, like your your mind's blown. And the first time you see the rings on on Saturn, you know, that, that's a, something that people never forget. You know, the, the, they'll always yeah. hold that as a, a, a kind of key moment, if you like. Um, but generally, I would say if you want to see the planets, get a telescope but you don't have to get a super expensive one. If you want to see, just look at the stars and things visually and see some of the big galaxies and nebulae, it's just get a pair of binoculars, learn the sky, like where the constellations are at different times of year and stuff. Mm -hmm. And then when you want to drift into astrophotography, then just use a camera, a DSLR with a um, hit lens, lovely pictures of the Milky Way, wide field shots of, of the sky that will also show up nebula. And then after that, if you're still keen, you get a tracking mount that will enable you to take your 15 second exposures up to four minutes in some cases. Wow. Then you really do start. Tracking mounts don't, they're 400 pounds stroke dollars. You know, they're, they're not, super expensive and only okay. at that point i would say would, would you start getting into the, the the telescope stuff i know england can be uh, a bit more challenging with regard to wild camping as say scotland or even here in the u.s um i'm going to be heading to england this summer actually in a couple weeks 
and I would like to do some wild camping. Um, what should folks like myself know regarding wild camping in England? Okay, so firstly, technically, wild camping is illegal in England. Yeah. Um, however, if you got caught wild camping, say somebody took umbrage and you got caught wild camping, it's not a criminal offence. So you, it's not like you get a criminal record or, or you get arrested or anything like that. Hope what, not. What's supposed to happen if you, and I should point out, I've never been, had anybody approach me at all. Um, okay. But what what generally happens if, if so you get caught is that um, the, the landowner asks you, usually polite and says, oh, do you know this is private land and blah, 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 blah. And then they would usually give you one of two options. One is worst case, they would ask you to leave straight away. Or second case, it often happens, if it looks like you're a responsible wild camper. I'm not talking about a group of teenage boys with 27 cans of beer all around them and stuff like that. Right. If you look like you're responsible, they will often say, uh, move on in the morning, which you're meant to do anyway. Okay. Um, yeah. There's a whole uh, kind of unwritten series of rules about wild camping in England that if you follow them, you're usually okay. The single most important one is leave no trace. So when you leave, it should look exactly as it was when you arrived, except for perhaps the flattened bit of grass where your tent was on. Fires are discouraged. So you, you don't make campfires. You, you just use your stove to, to cook your dinner. Mm -hmm. You don't camp right next to a footpath. And in general, you arrive late and leave early. Um, so arriving late maybe an hour before it gets dark i mean that's difficult in the summer because uh, like when you're yeah in the it's late but eleven thirty p.m you, you don't want to <laughs> yeah you, you don't want to be putting your tent up at four o'clock in the afternoon and what okay. people will often do i mean you can do that in the lake district funny enough lots of people will do that oh. because places like the lake this district it's some. Um, do you know what a tarn is in yes at all it's a, it's a uh, like a little mount, a little mountain lake like a lake yeah yeah the, <clears throat> the tarns in the lakes are dead popular as camp wild camping spots and you, you'll often see you know five or six tents uh, around a, a tarn okay. and that's all all accepted uh but you just don't camp right next to the the footpath nobody's okay. going to kick you off a tarn in, in in the lakes um i wondered about that extreme. i thought they would be like yeah. maybe discouraged a little bit not really um and cumbria <clears throat> is probably the best place to work where it's most tolerated the peak okay. district is another area where everybody camps in the peak district there's some real honey spots areas there uh, and i think they're like worried about them being spoiled um yeah dartmoor in the southwest it's i think technically it's illegal but there's actually an agreement with a lot of landowners to allow 
while camping there, it's kind of almost written into the Dartmoor constitution, if you like. And hmm. there was a landowner earlier on this year who took away his permission and it threatened yeah, to I saw that. make the whole more camping thing go down the pan. Uh, but luckily it was kind of rescued mostly at the last minute. Okay. Now where I can, where I do most of my camping is on the South Downs, which is a national park now. Okay. And it's very well, or it's highly populated my part of the world. The South Downs is a hive of mountain biking and hiking activity. There's a long distance path called the South Downs Way that's incredibly yes. popular. But people will wild camp there. Um, it's slightly more difficult because you've got more animals on the downs, like cows really? and stuff. Oh, okay. We we didn't have um, what you, you know, wolves and bears and you know, and any of the nasty. <laughs> All the critters we have. <laughs> yeah, you, you have. Yeah, there's nothing really that will kill you, or there's nothing that risking will kill our lives over be... here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we haven't got any of that. I think. Uh, cows are a bit inquisitive yeah. and there's always the fear with cows that they can um, uh, accidentally trip over your, your guy line and if a cow like accidentally trod on your tent or fell, even worse fell onto it then that wouldn't be, be, be good um, now I have a new you, fear thanks John <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, well, you don't see any cows in the Lake District. You're right, or in Scotland. Oh, okay. Um, no, you, you, because the reality is in those areas, you shouldn't be camping where there are cows anyway. You're supposed to be much higher up. Right. On the South Downs, you're only at um, 900 feet, 800 feet, so that the hills there are all covered in, in cows and sheep and stuff. And the, okay. and the problem with cows is they move They move around. And, and I move this to my... Yeah, I, I found this much to my consternation last year. I camped on a spot. We're going to talk about my goodbye video a bit. Was where I camped was a spot I'd been to three or four times before. It's great, lovely views out. out it was pretty. And I'd never seen any cows there at all. And this particular camp, I was in a bivy bag and it was great. And I went to sleep. And in the morning, I heard these kind of shuffling sounds and I thought, oh, it's nothing, stayed in bed a bit. And eventually I kind of poked my head out the bivy to find I was surrounded by this herd of cows. <laughs> and I thought, oh man, what do I do now? Uh -oh. So I kind, of, I kind of got up dead slowly just so I didn't like frighten them or anything and, and got dressed yeah. and this whole herd of cows kind of moved past where I was camping off to wherever it was I don't know where they were going um but that <laughs> that was quite disconcerting it really <laughs> so I think yeah. you know, getting back to your original question yes it is much harder while camping in England than it is in Scotland and, and in the US technically it's illegal the reality is you won't get into any serious trouble and the chances <clears throat> of anybody wanting to move you on is, is really remote, provided you follow the leave no trace, don't camp on the footpath 
turn up a bit yeah. late, don't be in the tent at 11 a.m. Um, yeah, so you, you'll have no, no, no real, real problems, I don't think. I recently watched your bikepacking uh, video. I really, really enjoyed that because, mm-hmm. as you know, I'm getting ready to cycle the Hebrides. Um, and I decided yeah. to cycle that rather than walk it for time constraints. Um, mm. And that's going to be my first ever bikepacking trip. That's the first time I've ever done that. Um, I'm open mm. to any and all advice with regard to cycling um, and camping and, and the whole bikepacking experience. What should somebody like myself know before heading out on a bikepacking adventure? Okay, yeah, the the thing with bikepacking that's different to backpacking is you've got far less capacity, carrying capacity. So um, I, I can't remember what size your rucksack is, but I suspect it's somewhere between 50 and 65 litres. It's 38 litres this summer. In some, oh, right, okay, it's still bigger than the capacity still bigger. of bikepacking. Okay. The the so the, the the big issue is carrying stuff. Yes. And this is why. So you, the the problem is your sleeping bag and your tent, basically the kind of two bulky objects. Um. Some people will put panniers on the back of their the the, the, the great big bags on on either yeah, side. Yeah, I rented those. And, uh, yeah, you see that's possible to do because then. Because these come in quite big sizes, I think you I might wondered. find that each one, but yeah, you, you, they might be fifteen liters each. But then you've got, you know, your oh. your two sides, two of them, yes, two of them. So you've got thirty liters, and then you've got the rack that they're sitting on that you yes. can strap your tent to. I can strap. Oh, so, so that the that's what I would look at there if I can find it. I'll email you a picture of a, a bike set up where I went years ago, where I had a tent and panniers strapped to the, the back of my bike. Thank you. I would I, appreciate that. And then you can get a feeling for that. Because a lot of the kind of modern bike packers now are going quite minimalist. Yes. And, but these are people who are doing it all the time. And so mm-hmm. they'll go in a bivy bag for example right um and they'll take minimum changes of clothing with them and stuff and the, the modern bike packing equipment you can fit it to almost any bike but the problem is that your overall carrying capacity is probably 20 liters something like that i wondered about um, that so the, this is why for you unless you're going to buy very specialist equipment i would Mm. stick to this pannier idea the the caveat on that though is your bike's amazingly heavy (laughs) not to be underestimated how much extra weight you know a tent will will add how much does your tent weigh out of interest it weighs 20 ounces so that's let me see how many grams that's but that's one and a bit probably one and a quarter pounds that's actually live mm. 
1.25 pounds. That's really light. Yes. Fact. I mean, you, you'd actually struggle to get a bibby that's, that's that light. So you, you, yeah. your weight might not be too bad. Um, I, I've bought a 10 that I haven't used yet that's really for uh, doing a bit of bike packing. Mm -hmm. And I think that's <clears throat> even that's probably two pound or just done, maybe a bit under. Um, yes. So you, you you may well be yeah not not the if I can find this picture and email it to you, the tent was um something like two kilos four pound. <laughs> Got it. Yeah, I um basically. I rented a bike on Barra from the Barra Bike Hire. Um, mm. I don't know if you know anything about this bike. They gave me the Live a Light Hybrid. I don't know anything okay, about that yeah. bike. Is it a decent bike? Yeah, I'm the, assuming it is. So if it's a hybrid bike, it's a cross between a, a mountain bike and a, and a road going bike. Yes. Um, it'll probably have flat handlebars, which if you're not used to riding drop handlebars, it is good. Um, yes. I, I've seen a video of somebody cycling that Hebridean trail, but not enough of it for me to know how much of it's tarmac, how much is gravel, how much is like super rocky stuff. I don't think there's a huge amount of super rocky stuff. So um, I suspect you'll be able to actually ride a lot of it. Um, yeah, I think the cool but, thing um, about that one is you can combine the walking and the cycling because I think there's yeah. several. Or you could just do the straight cycleway, which I believe is all paved. In which case, like the height, you'll have no real, real issues. Because the, the difficulty when you've got like a rough track and a lot of weight on your bike and stuff. It's mm. physically very, very hard, you know. How many miles are you planning on doing each day on the bike, do you think? See, that I, I don't know. Um, I mean, I can walk about 20 miles a day, so I would I would assume I could probably bike at least 30. I, I really don't know. Yeah. Because you, you, cycling... Yeah, you think so that's what i figured i figured i could probably do between 30 and 35 because here in florida it's very it's flat i mean i can't there's nothing i can you know ride here yeah. that's going to compare yeah. to there unless i took my bike and and drove a couple of days into the mountains but i just i don't have the time for that mm -hmm. so um i i figured i would largely wing it because that's kind of what yeah. made it difficult for me to think, okay, well, I know a lot of people easily camp the whole way. And I mm. could probably just turn up on a campsite and maybe possibly turn up at a hostel or something if I, you know, yeah. wanted to. Um, so I think I'm just largely going to wing it and see how far I can get each day. I allowed myself six days. Yeah, that, that that sounds about good to me. Yeah, if you said, oh, you were trying to do 60 miles a day, I would have said, no, that's probably a, a bit ambitious. So, uh, no, my cardio yeah, is not so, that good. <laughs> no, it's so, not. Yeah, you say you've rented, have you like rented these pannier things that go on either side already or not? Or, yeah. Yes. So I, so I did. What, I rented the panniers. 
they didn't specify yeah. a size so i don't i didn't know the average size of the pannier so i'm thinking do i have to disassemble my backpack and put all the things in the panniers that would probably be better than trying to like wear my backpack while i'm riding right yeah and i mean people do cycle with with packs on their back but um it affects your center of gravity a bit your back right. gets sweaty and stuff so it, it, it but the thing with the panniers there'll be they call it a pannier rack and that's the thing that you hang the panniers off right you've got the whole top surface of that that you can strap other things to put my uh, tent and my sleeping pad the, the, yeah these Backpack. bulky type items that you can't cram in your um in, into your your panniers the the yes. video that you watched that, that i did was the kind of more modern way of doing it but you could probably see on there there's nowhere very easily to to strap a, a sleeping bag and stuff so you okay. what people end up doing is buying very expensive stuff that packs down really small but it, it's a bit of a mystery to me I like the compression yeah, you can get the compression sacks, which help. Um, mm -hmm. But people lay out what they're taking bike packing and say, oh, I've got all of this into this tiny, and I don't know how they do it. <laughs> I can't figure out how they do it. Yes, it's very um, interesting. But uh, so I'm, I'm going to try the more lightweight route this year, probably. Originally, I was going to cheat and stay in a camping pod. Um, I've done that. Which, which is luxury-like. Sort it is thing. but um, I, think, I think i'll actually will th this year i'll probably do it as, as a camp thing and then next year i might try the the camping pod way but, um, nice yeah i love that it, it's so, your distance you just need you my big tip would be keep your distance down because cycling around okay. on a bike with all the luggage is a lot harder than riding around like normally i'm worried about it <laughs> no you'll be for 30 miles all right yeah i'm a little worried but it's, yeah it's i think not... it's not what sorry um it's not that hilly uh, uh well until the end right i i, I figure of the the two big islands is harris and lewis and one's mountainous and the other one isn't um right I think so I th think it's Paris, like day think, five and six or the last couple of days that you get the hills. Yeah, that's probably the, the, the bit around Harris, I would think. Um, mm -hmm. The only trouble is when it's flat, it's dead windy. That's the because the, right. the wind's coming straight off the Atlantic there. That's some um, tough so winds, man. Way, you know, yeah, if it happens, good if it happens to be tailwind, of course. But Yes, push me, push me along. It, yeah. <laughs> And, and it might be that you are, are you doing that south to north um Do you know? yes i'm starting in barra and and going up that way and, i'm and flying into barra actually because i i'm horribly seasick so the thought of being on that ferry for five hours i, oh, I couldn't no, do it. Some, yeah. can't do it no, so yeah, so that you're flying to the south, and and what I suspect yeah. is, in general, the prevailing wind is probably to your side or behind you if you go in that direction. So that, that's what you want. The flight, yes. incidentally, to the Hebrides is a most 
I, I flew from Glasgow to um, the Isle of Lewis once for work. You did. Because uh, although it's all like abandoned, or not abandoned, it's very remote there. Um, yes. But there's this place in um, the Isle of Lewis that produces incredibly pure fish oil, like oh. very high purity stuff. And um, in my old job, we, we used to deal with like the process industry and stuff. And I had to go there one day for work to visit the, the site and got a flight from Glasgow across to Lewis. And honestly, I, I would have paid the company to have that flight. You, you're looking out the window, going across the highlands and all the islands. It, yeah, I, I'd have paid. It, it was so Yeah? Good. It was so good. Okay. So, so it wasn't it, terrifying. No, no, it's a little plane. Uh, yes, that's what I'm terrified about. It's quite prepared. No, no, it, it's fine. Yeah, no. I'm scared so, of flying. It, it, it's terrible. <laughs> no, it's it, it's a beautiful flight. You, you just have to Good. get over the fact that it's noisy. That that's all. Yes. So, so you'll have a great trip, I'm sure. I'm excited. Um, I think I'm going to be too early to catch the Northern Lights in the Hebrides. I'm not sure what the time frame is for those, but it. I would love to try to see them. Um, what would be the best way to capture such an event on camera? Is it possible to like photograph that um, without a DSLR? Yeah, it's some. Um, it, it, a DSLR is the ideal thing to to use, but a, a camera, a, you know, modern phone has got a very typically very good cameras in them. And I've seen some stunning shots of um, Aurora that people have taken. Because often, if you get an Aurora, it, it comes out of nowhere. You're not prepared for it, particularly. Right. And you just, so you have to take a picture of it. There are apps, actually, that you can get that warn you. Um, I got one. There's a lot of like, sun activity and that there's a likelihood yes. of the Aurora and how far south it's going to go. I'm so excited. Phone, yeah, I mean, I think you. It's unlikely that it will actually get dark enough. When are you going to be there? It's not. Yeah. Um, I am getting on a plane, uh, two weeks from this past Monday, so just a little over two weeks right. from now. Um. Yeah. So mid May. There may be some darkness up in because, of course, the further north you go, the the less um darkness right. you get here. Um, yes, that there may still be some darkness there, and, and if you're lucky, and there there is some, so you keep this app going, so it will tell you whether there's any chance. So you have to keep it and open. Then you can use, well, I think you can check it every. Oh, you can set it for alerts, right? Yes. You, I think you can probably set it for alerts. Yes. And then to use your camera, you can't just well, you could try, but you'd struggle. You, you can't just take an automatic photo like you normally would. Your phone has probably got some sort of different modes of camera that you can use. You get like night mm -hmm. mode and pro mm -hmm. mode and, and this thing. Yes. If it's got pro mode on a professional mode, or are you Android or, or iPhone? I'm iPhone. We've got like a cinematic um lighter mm. darker 
um cinematic is is mostly what i use um but there is yeah. like a low light mode also yeah because what, what you want to do is if it allows you to do it is to set your um iso number to quite a high pretty well as high as your camera will, will take on an iphone something like iso 3200 so that makes okay. it very sensitive to light that's coming in uh if you can get an exposure time of a few seconds that's sort of helpful as well the drawback with that is your camera needs to be dead steady right so one possibility because you're not going to be carting a tripod around is you kind of prop your camera up against something right. so it's pointing in the right direction and okay. then set a self timer of five seconds so you press the button the camera shakes a bit but then it settles down oh okay um but you want to have the highest iso setting that your phone will allow really. will allow okay awesome you never know i figured I, I should probably ask you about that so i would know whether or not i was dreaming thinking i could maybe get a shot no, or two. The, 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 there's been we hardly ever get auroras down here i'm too far south but the yeah. last month or two there have been three occasions when yes fun, it's been cloudy here every time oh <laughs> come on <laughs> When I left uh, Scotland, it wasn't long after. I, I think it was maybe a month or two, maybe. I don't know. Maybe mm. maybe I'm thinking of the last go-round I heard about in England. But um, they were getting mm. them over the Highlands in Glencoe, no, the Highlands in, in that not, area. Oh, yeah, the, the, they get loads in the Highlands. I um, am excited because I'm going back there, too. And I don't know whether or not the time of year, because I'm going to be there at the beginning of June. And yeah, I don't know if I'm if it's too far into the season to see anything like that. Yeah, it's it's just depends on how much darkness you're getting. Okay. I mean, the when you're in when you're in Cumbria, I'd keep your eye open there as well. Okay, because of the yeah you know, they that they've had some great um, instances, and again you're that bit further south, so it stays dark yep. that bit longer. Right, um, but unfortunately, you know we're here. 21st of june or whatever is the shortest day and uh and, right and, and even here in the south of england it doesn't really get that dark um okay so but you're there you you have a phone so you just try your luck i will try my luck otherwise you'll have to go to Iceland or something well that's on my list too that was supposed to be this summer as well but i had to push it off because i couldn't get more than a month off, you know, my boss mm. was, is quite generous in allowing me a, a month every summer. Oh, you, you, yeah, you, so. you're doing really well to, to get that, <laughs> yes. to be honest. Yes. Um, I am a firm believer in the saying that you are never too old to try something new. I'm telling people that every day in my line of work, um, whether it be working out, which is what I teach people to do, um, hiking, camping, I think society tends to put expectations on people based on age and Instagram and YouTube are full of all the younger folks out there on adventures. And I am now in the past decade or so starting to see lots more folks in their forties, fifties and beyond 
out there pursuing their outdoor passions. Um, the idea that once you hit a certain age, you can't do certain things is just really, it's just not a thing to me. It just seems sad that people put these expectations on themselves or others. Um, what is your advice for someone feeling like they'd like to get out there and are perhaps unsure of where to start based on their age? Yeah, I mean, th th this is uh, always a very good point. And um, you, you are right. You know, you, when you you look at a lot of the people on YouTube and Instagram, that they are all in their 30s and, and that sort of thing. But there is an increasing number of older people. And um, a, a chap that springs to my mind um, <clears throat> is one of the people who, we mutually subscribe to each other on YouTube. He's called The Wandering Forester. And he started his channel um, last year sometime, I think. And his first video was introducing himself. And he's about 70, or he is in his 70s. And he mm -hmm. was doing his first, well, it wasn't his first wild camp, but he used to wild camp when he was younger. And he, he yeah. was going back to it. And he was doing wild Aww. camping in the mountains in Wales. I love it. And I said, man, you're such an inspiration. Because I've sort of in my head, I'm like 60 in January. Mm -hmm. And I was sort of thinking, well, if, if I can keep rolling till I'm 70, doing all this active stuff, then I, I, I'll be quite happy. But it does suggest yeah. that, that you can go go on longer. And um, for people kind of umming and ahhing about whether to uh get started or not um there, there's two things really the the first is like you you know a cat's got nine lives and a human being has two right you probably didn't realize you've got two lives but the second oh, life starts the minute you realize that you've only actually got one life yeah so if you're at this point of thinking should I do this? Should I do that? That's the point where you're realizing, actually, uh, uh, this is my got the opportunity now for my yes. second life. It's my time, and it's yeah. And uh, <clears throat> the reason I would say not to delay goes back to what I was saying earlier on about like you get something like COVID come along, yeah, and you and it's taken away from you. So you, you need to kind of act when, when the desire starts to, to take you. And I think the trick when, when you get older is to not push yourself too far out of your limit. So I, I'm all for getting out of your comfort zone, but there's no point in going so far out of your comfort zone that you hate it and you give up. So right. you, you want to think up you, you want to think up targets that are I won't say difficult, attainable but a little bit a, a yeah challenging yet attainable right and then gradually work your way you know figure out where I where am I now what, what is this challenge that I want to do or mm -hmm. like maybe do your first wild camp or something and gradually yes. crank your um start effectively training for it do little mini experiences yes 
and, until you get there. And then when you reach that one, then you can always set up uh, another goal. But the, the most important thing is just to get out and do it because at the end of the day, you know, there are people going up Everest and doing whitewater rafting, all stuff that you couldn't potentially dream about when you're, say, 50 or 60. Right. But you set your, you set your own adventure. And that's then your adventure. And it's a good adventure because it's your one. Absolutely. It's exactly the same philosophy as I was saying about taking photographs of the sky yeah. from from your back garden. You know, there'll always be people doing more adventurous stuff than you. Yes. But you, you need to get, get out the front door and start your little adventure. There's a, a guy here, I think it's called Alistair Humphreys. He's an ex, he's sort of an explorer, like an Arctic explorer type person. Mm-hmm. And he coined the idea or the phrase about 10 years ago what's called a micro adventure yes and this is simply you leave home in the evening you go and sleep on a hill somewhere nearby or in a wood and you come home the next day yeah and that counts that counts as an adventure you don't even have to go that far away so yes yeah set yourself a target but make it attainable because otherwise there's no point. You just get demoralized and do a series of little mini target adventures that will get you there. Um, and yes. just getting out, all you've got to do is get out You know, at, at the end of the day and have a bit of fun. Walking out the door sometimes is the most difficult thing. Just well, get, just walk is. out. Well, they're, 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 I think there's somebody famous or a writer said something like the, the longest journey or the greatest journey starts with the first step from your door. And, yeah. And that's basically it. Um, yeah. So the, it, I think you you have to be a bit lucky with your health, obviously, to do all the sort of things we're talking about. You, you, but yeah. um, it's still possible, I think, within the, the constraints that you have, it's still yes. possible to come up with a, a, a nice little adventure, even if it's just one night out somewhere. Or, I or think walking, so as well. Even walking three, four miles for right counts because that's a lot for somebody. That 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 counts, and, and um, you see it a lot in the um, the cycling world. That, that I mean, you know, there's all these uh, YouTube groups now, over fifties cycling at over seventy and. I think there's some guy yeah. who's got a Facebook YouTube channel for cycling at 50 plus. So I love it. 50 plus is is not a a, a barrier now. We we it, had it's not come into our shopper guy um last year. He came in mm-hmm. and he wanted to buy a rucksack and a this uh, walking boots and a sleeping bag and this sort of thing, and he was probably he was in his 60s and I asked him where he was going and he said I'm going to K2 base camp (gasps) K2 base camp is probably the hardest trek in the world you know makes Everest look like a a walk around your local lake yeah and I was kind of saying to him wow you know and explaining to him how hard this trek was his daughter was with him who was going I knew that I knew she said I've been trying to talk him out of it and I said, are you absolutely sure that 
that this is what you you, when you do something easier like Everest or something. Mm-hmm. And he he said no. He, he said I I understand your concerns. He, he was a, a Muslim guy, tough as nails. Mm-hmm. He was, he was mm-hmm. like you could see he he, he like had a physical life if you like yeah and he said john because we've all got these little name badges on he says john he said i know you're worried about me he said but i spent most of my life living in the high in the himalayan mountains in Mm. pakistan he said so i'm i'm altitude tolerant and that he says "I'll, i'll be fine i said right when you come back i want you to come back in the shop and show me your pictures and he, yes. he came back before Christmas, much to my surprise. And he, he showed me his phone and, and there was all these pictures, you know. Oh. So I shook his hand when he left. I said, you're, you're an inspiration. Um, oh, that's this amazing. Doing the hardest trek in the world. I think we've just spotted the camera. Come on, Pez, Oh, look at that heavy. baby. <gasps> oh. he's missing out. What's going on? He is. He's like, hello. Um, so yeah so that if you've got the physical capability there's nothing to stop you really exactly it's just not not overstretching yourself too much correct i tell my clients all, all the time when they come to me you know because a lot of them do talk about their age you know as if it's a barrier to them doing things and mm. my specialty is strength and muscle building Um, so I have a lot of clients that are older and I like to share with them that my inspiration to begin bodybuilding was a lady that I saw competing who was 88 years old and still actively competing in bodybuilding shows. I mean, she was incredibly conditioned and she was a natural athlete, so she wasn't taking anything to, to help her build muscle. Um, so it is entirely possible but you are right and it it also applies in in my field as well that you you've got to do something a little bit lower scale and work your way up slowly that as i found that's the best way and the most sustainable way to increase both your strength stamina distance all all of that manageable chumps if you will Mm, that's right i think that's it and then you don't get disheartened as well and you're more likely yes. to keep a bit going for the rest of the long you know that's exactly well. yes um so the your goodbye video uh if you're mm. okay talking about that yeah, yes, um, it's fine. yeah, yeah. while your videos are always so informative and educational i found your goodbye video really nice um i lost my dad um five years ago it seems like yesterday um and it reminded me of my own recollections and reflections thinking about him while i was out in scotland on my west highland way trek um last year um did you wrestle with sharing those thoughts relating to your mom's passing on camera and what made you decide to do that yeah i i i I'm denied about it for a long time. What I actually did was I made two videos. You did. One was, so one was with that section at the end and one was without. Okay. And so I could make my decision afterwards as to which That's one smart. I was going to, um, to, to put out. 
um and yeah mo mostly i think in once i'd edited it and everything and i i thought well it was such a beautiful evening the sunset was like incredible and the, yeah. the weather unusually was playing ball and it, it was a very very nice evening and i, I thought um yeah, in, in the end, it was almost like, not quite a little tribute, but I hadn't really had the chance to say goodbye mm. to my mum. And um, it, just because once you're somebody who's that, that close to you uh, dies, you, you're the one who's doing all the organising and all this sort of thing. So everything yeah. was dead busy. Right. But certainly for the first month, it was chock-a-block. And then after that, um, I was an executor to the will, so I was constantly doing admin-y, form-filling-y type stuff. Uh, and you, you just don't get the chance to sit down and, uh, and, and think properly, you know, reflect, if you like. Um, so that was why I wanted to do that particular camp I deliberately wanted to do it when I knew the weather was going to be good so that I could sit outside and have a good thing rather than struggling with putting tents up in the rain and all, all this you know right. the usual fight that goes up doing a wild camp <laughs> um and in the end I thought well I'll, I'll put it up as a, a little bit of a almost a little bit of a tribute if you like I was a little bit worried what say my sister would would think about it but she watched it really? and she thought it was really nice so um i think it probably was the right decision in in the end but uh, yeah i did wrestle with with the idea because these things are quite personal uh right things to put up you know so hence i did have this secondary video that was the same except the ending was, di <laughs> was different it yeah. was a lovely video it, it was nice i yeah, think I your still, mom would be very proud of that yeah, I, I think so, because, or I hope so, because she wasn't really aware, because she had uh, Alzheimer's, basically. So my yeah. little YouTubing career, she hasn't known anything and anything of it. Uh, and yeah. I think she would have been, um, hopefully she would have been quite proud of it, yeah. Oh, I'm sure. So in kind of in that same vein, um, I started this uh, podcast to highlight the things that we carry with us into the outdoors, hence the base weight play on words. Um, like from an emotional standpoint, what we carry out there on these treks that we go on, whether it be an overnight, whether it be a through hike, kayaking trip, cycling trip, whatever. Um, because you have a lot of time to think. And Sometimes when you when you get out of your normal space and the noise of every day and you've got the quiet, sometimes things that might be unresolved will pop up and you're kind of forced to deal with things that you normally don't have a chance to deal with. Um, what does being in the outdoors mean to you and what is your emotional base weight when you're heading out on a an adventure? <clears throat> yeah, this I, I, I'm sort of fairly lucky in my life I think in that I haven't had anything kind of super bad happen to me the sort of problems and things that I've had are the same that 
everybody else has in, in their life when your parents pass away and, and that sort of thing. That coloured my perception of life such that I felt that I wasn't, A, I was going to try and do things like tick them off. If I want to do something, I'll, I'll go and do it, make, make sure I get right. it done. And B, I didn't want to end up in a job that I hated. Yeah. Uh, or too much stress or, or, or whatever. And so this meant part of this was what made me go off doing my, you know, Everest trips and the Alps and all that sort of thing to, because they were things I wanted to do. And I, I thought, well, I'm, you know, going to knock these on the head because you don't know, you, you could yourself go at 50. You, you just don't know what's ahead of you. Right. Um, it also coloured my work life in that I was never very ambitious. But what tended to happen to me was I kept getting promoted without asking for it. I was lucky that for most of my life, I um, like 29 years, I worked for the same company. Wow. And I started off as a um, technical sales engineer, or like a, a graduate sales engineer if you like mm -hmm. and I ended up as deputy MD when by the time I was in my 50s and uh yeah I'm very grateful for the for that company for allowing me you know that sort of indulgence to have such a steady career for that length of time yeah but when I was in my probably late 30s I started to think well I don't really want to be doing that till I'm retiring. And I had it in my head because then this was the carry on over from like my dad going at 51. Yeah. Uh, I had it in my head that when I was in my 50s, I was going to quit and do something that I really wanted to do. And for a long time, I had it in my head that what I was going to do is move up to Cumbria do guided walks uh, like as a mountain leader I'd do, I'd do the you have to do mountain leadership courses and things and and then you um you you can lead walks and stuff mm -hmm. by the time I got into my sort of 40s or late 40s it dawned on me that if you packed in in, in your 50s and this was going to be your job but the chances are your your joints and things weren't quite going to be up to going out every day doing all this sort of stuff. And so I started to think again about what I was going to do. And, and in the end, I decided that I was going to work in my company till I was 55 and then basically retire early or had my notice in mm -hmm. and go and work in an outdoor gear shop and on, on the grounds that you know that's still a lot of like outdoorsy thing but without the need to have good knees if you like <laughs> so I called in the local outdoor shop about a year in advance and explained what I was planning on doing and would they take somebody on of my age because you know they, they, they've got an image to present a lot of these companies and I wasn't 100% convinced that I met the image that that they were after but they said oh no no um we'd be dead pleased to have you uh join because yeah, i've got yeah your experience, experience yes 
so um yeah i handed my notice in at work much to the horror of, of um my md because it came a bit out of the blue for him and i basically i do 20 hours a week in in this outdoor shop um but oh, all of this has kind of come from what happened to my i didn't want what happened to my dad to happen to me if you know heal over with stress at 55 or something yeah. So I, I was very lucky to really have that long career there, build up a big enough pension fund. And they paid for, of course, for all via the back door, my wages. Mm -hmm. They were paying yeah. for me to go to Everest and go to the Andes. <laughs> you, you know, they yeah. gave me all of that. Um, but at the end yeah. of the day, it was the the, the, the time to say, no, no, now I'm going in a, in a different direction. Um, it's your time. So, then. yeah. So that, that, that was the kind of, emotional event that's influenced my life as regards being in the outdoors um like you i find it it's just the peace and, and the quiet yeah. of, of it uh, and the ability to sit there and ponder and um, I, I don't sit there ruminating over big problems because you know thankfully for for me i'm i'm um, free of that that sort of burden but i still like the um the piece getting away from it all do you prefer solo adventuring or shared adventuring i know in your videos you're usually solo you're are you solo in all of your videos yes yeah, yeah. I, do I, you I prefer, prefer that yes i, I do yeah I, um i just find that yeah I, I like to be in the outdoors for the quiet and the peace and sitting there chatting and stuff doesn't really match with that. I have done like wild camps with like another person. Mm -hmm. um, and there's one guy that I would go wild camping with perfectly happily. Like my kind of lifelong friend, if you like. Um, yeah. And, and we have a nice time and a laugh when we go and that sort of thing. But, but in general, I'm solitary. And I'm the same as a cyclist. Most of my bike rides are, are solitary rides. I've yeah. never done team sports. <laughs> you know, I've, I've, I've always been, I suppose, a bit of a miserable old git, really. But I, I'm quite happy in my own company. <laughs> Don't think I would describe you as that. <laughs> but, yeah, I'm, I'm very happy in my own company. Um, and the, the other thing is, like, you, you know, I rarely get time on my own, and and so it's nice right. to go off camping and have a bit, a, a bit of time on your own. Yes, so solitary is. all the way for me. <laughs> I feel you. I'm the same way. I am the same way. Although I'm, I, I am going to walk the West Highland Way with a friend this this year. So that'll be my first time doing a long distance trail with someone. So we'll we'll see if we still like each other after. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm sure. Yeah, well, a, a lot of the like the adventure holiday, like the Everest trip, that was as a part of a group trip. That's a group, yes, and, and that's quite nice. Because camaraderie. It, yeah, it's sort of pretty, as long as you get on with everybody, that it, it's yes. nice to do that. Um, You're all in the same the miserable thing. <laughs> yeah, that's. <laughs> but for for local stuff, yeah, uh, it, it's me on my own. Yeah. Awesome. Where is your favorite place to hike? Oh, it's Cumbria, the Lake District, by a, yeah. a mile, uh, an absolute mile, yeah. I thought 
that after I'd been to the Himalaya, which is like, you know, the, the, the king of mountain ranges. Yes. That I'd find everything else less beautiful, if, if you like. Yeah. And when I went to the Alps the, to do the Tour of Mont Blanc, <clears throat> that I found you, you were that much closer to the to the mountain. And so right. that had its own kind of allure. But I never got bored, and I never have got bored of the Lake District, even though you're not seeing these 28,000-foot snow-covered peaks. It's still just so beautiful that that's all, that will always be my, my little happy place will be, be the Lake District. So you've picked a good, a good place to go, yeah. Hiking and or astrophotography bucket lists. What are your top five? Uh, you've been never the highest mountain in Scotland. If you've not, have not, you climbed it? Um, yeah, I've been up it four times so far. It's a long slog. In summer, I've done it. Um, in winter, it's a completely different. Well, in summer, it's like a long day out. Yeah, <clears throat> but it's got a lot of ascent and descent. Obviously, in okay. Winter, it's a completely different ballpark. I mean, people, every year people die on know, Ben yeah. Nevis. And so well, I'm, I'm doing it really because I'm going to do it to mark my 60th birthday, but I'm going to do it with a guide. I'm not, I'm not competent enough at uh, like winter stuff, like where you can get avalanched and things. Right. I've got experience of it, but not, not to the extent where I'd be happy going up Ben Nevis. So I'd rather pay a guide like £200 for a day. And uh, the rule I'm going to set is that if either of us calls it, so if I say it's too much for me or he says it's too dangerous, then then mm -hmm. we we quit. Call it. Uh, I mean, Abby Barnes went, I don't know whether you've seen her video of going up. I did. Ben Nevis in, in the winter. Mm -hmm. But it's conditions that if you get it wrong, you can die in that's the yeah. problem it, even yeah. even going up the the pony track the standard route it, it is a, a a very difficult proposition that's one of the bucket lists in okay. order to decide whether i'm actually good enough or fit enough to go up there which that that walk is it's about eight miles i think or nine miles and I it's think. got 4,200 feet of up, yeah. Give or take. So in order to, yeah, so this is why it's a long day, you know, even in the summer, it is a long day out. So, in order to decide whether I'm actually good enough to do that, I'm going to do a walk this summer called the Fang Dance, which you probably haven't heard of. No. And that is in the Brecon Beacons, and it's the oldest and most famous military selection march. It's uh, used by the special forces here. And if you try and sign up oh. for the special forces, at the end of the first week, they make you walk the fan dance. Really? And the difference between the special forces doing it and me is they have to do it in, I think, under four hours, whereas my goal is eight hours to, oh, wow. to do it in. Okay. And it's something like... I think it's 16 miles with a very similar 4,000 feet of ascent in it. 
it's basically up wow. and down several mountains. And what I figured is if I can do that walk, the longer walk, the fan dance in the summer, then hopefully I'll be fit enough to do the the Ben Nevis walk in the, ben in the Nevis winter. one because you've got a much okay. heavier pack the Ben Nevis. You've got crampons on your feet, so every time you lift your foot, you've got like an extra two hundred grams of metal strapped on yeah. to each foot. So that those are the two kind of immediate ones in the longer term i'd quite like to walk that um because i did geology as a kid when i was at school and of course iceland's like just a, a geology yes heaven. yeah uh so i'd quite like to walk that, that whole trail in which case i'd do it with like a you, i think you can do that on your own you can um, it could get could get a like little bit days. dicey if the weather turned turned on mm -hmm. you um but that's something i would quite like to do um there's also a potential something like uh mount i can never pronounce it in it's in morocco to tobukai topukai or something it's the highest mountain in oh morocco. yeah i know what you're talking about you can do that either in summer or or winter conditions okay um and but winter conditions is is again i'd have to have ben nevis under my belt before i did anything like that in, in yeah. winter um i've met a few people who've done it but they've had to have a couple of goes at it because then you know their knees struggle or or whatever it's the sort mm -hmm. of things that, that happen um and i'd quite like to go to some of the um maybe the wind the mountains in um eastern europe in winter as as well so that those are my, my long trips are probably finished now i'm not likely to be going back to nepal again or, or anything like that so more kind of europe stroke icelandy kind of um of of, of trips but um, so winter camping is a theme yeah we, I'd, I'd quite like to do a snow camp i do winter camping anyway here but every time i've gone it's not snowed um and you basically have to accept that you're going to be stuck in your tent for 14 hours in the winter so you, right. you need to like your tent you know that's you gotta the, like it <laughs> and you, you, you need to have kit that's capable of of surviving that kind of um environment because even on the south downs here the the winds in winter time are sufficiently strong that it would destroy your average kind of three season tent you'd have your poles breaking and all this sort of thing so the, the, those are the kind of like so I've got the short term goals and the and the, the longer term ones. In, in reality, um, I kind of have this view that when the day comes and I'm I'm lying on my deathbed, I want to look back and say, yeah, I had a a good stab at, at life, but there were still a few things I quite like to have done. So I'm kind of almost not worried whether the longer term ones actually get done or not but it's usually good to have some kind of goal I think that you think so you, 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 something that you would like to do what's your favorite part of an adventure is it the planning the execution or the reflection afterward I think that probably depends a bit on the adventure it's what it actually is um uh, are you familiar with the terms types one two and three fun or not yes so type one fun is like i had a holiday in tenerife with my wife it was 
fun thinking about it. It was fun being there. It was fun looking back on it. Mm-hmm. Most of what I do is probably type too fun. So it's a little bit hard when you're there, but when you're back, you you think, oh, that was great. Like people who run yeah. the marathon and then say never again and two days later sign up for the next They're one. doing it again. <laughs> um, type, three, <laughs> type three fun I generally avoid. You know, that's where you've overstretched yourself too much and it, it's put you off. So in terms of what I do, most of this sits in the type fun scenario, uh, type two fun scenario, two. which the planning is good. I enjoy doing the planning because I like maps. The thing itself is usually fun in certain bits and not in others. And going up the fan dance and Ben Nevis might not be much fun at, at the time. And what's good is looking back on them afterwards. Yeah. So I think for me, probably the most enjoyable bits is the, the preparation and looking back on it when you're safely home afterwards. But when you get the odd camp or where it's beautiful weather and everything falls into place, then it's really good at the time. But yes. mostly when you're you're actually doing the thing, you're thinking, oh, heck, my knee's hurting and right. this problem, that problem, the other problem. So that's more of a, uh, it's a bit more challenging actually doing the thing than it is yes. looking back on it when you've got home afterwards. Yeah. Yes. In the in the uh, afterglow of the whole thing, this is it. Yeah, that, that, yes. that's wrong. So, do you find it hard balancing normal life responsibilities with getting out and adventuring? Um, not too bad now, uh, because now no, I only yeah. work twenty hours a week, so it's not too difficult. I mean, I don't get. I should probably camp. I'll do a camp once every two months, probably. And then okay. a, a, a longer walk, like I might go to the Brecon Beacons on the other month. Mm-hmm. And I think the thing that drives me there, and, and people used to ask me, well, why are you driving 200 miles to go and do a four-hour walk in the mountains to drive 200 miles back again? Right. And part of the answer for for that is um geared around mrs camping astronomer so she used to uh go hiking with me in the lake district and she's i I went back to the alps with her after i'd done the tour of mont blanc and did some walking with her so she likes all of this kind of outdoory sort of thing and then she got an illness called fibromyalgia which is you might be I don't know whether you're familiar with that from your kind of exercise so this pegged her right back and we did get to the stage where she was back walking again and then when my daughter was born you have a lot of sleep deprivation and obviously it's quite physically demanding and that set yeah. her right back to the extent that she's never fully recovered from it. And she was, I won't say she was bedridden, but she certainly had to pack up work and, and all that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. And then four or five years ago, she took the quite brave decision that she was going to attempt to go back to work at least part time, which is what, what she does now. Mm-hmm. But I know that she dearly liked to be, you know going off to the lakes all the time and, and this that and the other 
And so for me, I don't really feel comfortable swanning off doing what, what I want to do all the time. It's kind of not fair on her because I know it's stuff that she'd really like to do. Yeah. Um, so I kind of limit, which is why I say, you know, I've got a camp every two months. And on the, the time I'm not camping, I'll do a walk. And often that walk will be something that I try and do in a day. So it doesn't look like I'm going on a holiday all the time. You, know, you can see it from her without her, view, if you like. <laughs> yeah. Without her, yeah. So um, my balance of trying to get everything kind of done is, is more around that rather than, than work, to be fair. But it seems to work, you know, quite well. And um, she's doing quite well at work at the minute. And so long as there's no relapses and things, mm. it, we, you know, we might have a little troop off to the Lake District, which is her happy place as well, and just do some gentle walking because it's all baby steps. But with fibromyalgia, you have to be a bit careful. You don't go too far and then set yourself back a year or or something right. like that. Yeah. Um. So so that's my balance struggle, if, if you like, rather than a, a work obviously has an impact to it, but working 20 yes. odd hours a week it's not not the significant thing it what used to be but it isn't now we're going to get a little bit into gear talk i don't know about you but i love gear i get really excited when new pieces of gear come out and i really love watching what other people are carrying mm. with them in their packs i love the videos where people are like hey what's in my pack what am i taking on this adventure mm. because i always learn something I always learn something new and it sends me down a rabbit hole of, of looking at gear. So we're going to talk a little bit mm. about gear because I know there are some mm. companies in the UK that uh, we don't have here and vice versa. And it's just yeah. really fun. Um, yeah. It is said there are two types of walkers, those who would rather be comfortable walking and those who would rather be comfortable at camp. Uh, which are mm. you? Right. I'm, I'm actually attempt to do both and the, but the the reason i um i do that is mostly i'm either going for a walk or i'm going for a camp so if i'm going for a camp my base weight is typically 15 kilos i'm capable of carrying that in mountains for maybe two and a half three hours walking it's heavy the reason but the reason for that is because I like to be comfortable when I'm in mm -hmm. the camp. So if I'm trying to do a longer walk than two and a half to three hours, then I've got obviously my walking kit that, that's geared <laughs> around uh, 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 around that. And my, my yes. pack for the, the that SAS selection march thing is going to be fairly minimal. Um, okay. Be, yeah, because it's... I don't have to, they have to carry a big pack, but I don't. So I'm just interested right. in doing the distance. No, when I camp here on the South Downs locally, you can usually park your car and then within an hour and only um, a few hundred feet, seven, six, seven hundred feet of ascent, you, you can you can find a spot. So I, I can afford to be comfortable in camp. Yeah. Uh, you just have to put up with carrying that sort of weight. And, uh, you know, I mentioned the guy, Roger, who, the 70-year-old who's yeah. gone back to wild camping. He, yeah. he, said, he said, yeah, I either walk or I camp. I don't do both anymore. 
it's too much to carry a lot of weight and and do like 10 miles in, in mountains or something i keep looking at people's base weights and they're way lower than mine <laughs> <laughs> 33 pounds is a lot but you know if you're if you're videoing and you're looking at the stars and you're taking pictures and all that stuff i would imagine that a lot of it is electronics you know yeah, yeah there's a lot of stuff but you got a tripod with you and, and all these sorts right. of things so all of this all, all adds up and um I, I think i worked out that my true base weight in terms of the definition of what base weight actually is mm -hmm. um is it, is probably nearer 10 kilos and okay certainly when i'm walking when i'm walking home having poured all the water out because i know i'm only say half an hour's walk from the car at that point yeah and eating all my food my pack feels an awful lot better than it does on on the way up i don't know if this is a term in the uk the big three um um not so much as in in the us but basically you're looking like your tent your sleep and um is the third your one backpack. Your, your pack all your boots i can't remember which, which yeah so the tent sleep system and backpack what are the ones that you are currently using okay so um currently i've got two tents that i typically use one is called the hilleberg solo i don't know whether you've come across that or not i have that one's pretty this, popular isn't it this is regarded or commonly thought of as the best one person tent on the market Mm -hmm. uh, some people will dispute that but mostly that's the, the thing. and it's a, a, a typically a four season tent certainly for uk conditions yeah. that can pretty well cope with any weather that the uk will throw at it and whilst i commonly uh, spout the philosophy of use what you have and you don't need to spend loads of money you know this tent's like the thick end of a thousand pounds i don't know mm -hmm. what it is in in the states but you've got your your import so it comes from norway yeah. i think so this is a dead expensive tent but what i found is because i was doing winter camping the the tents that i was using were struggling to cope with with the conditions that that i was in and i figured that i really even on the south downs i really needed a, a tent that could cope with 50 mile an hour winds and, and this sort of thing. Yeah. So that, that's where the Hilleberg Solo came from. It's got, or a lot of people struggle with condensation in it because it goes right, being yeah. a winter tent, it goes right down to the ground. Um, yeah. I haven't actually had that as a problem yet. Um, oh. I'm going to try it a bit in the summer just to see, because having spent that much money on it, I'm, it's going to get... <laughs> going to get yes. used whether it's get your use out of it <laughs> um the other tent that i like is an msr tent called the elixir one this is one of the biggest one person tents i've ever come across the, the living space is incredible inside it yeah and I have used it in winter, and th this is really what made me buy the Hilleberg because I I risk destroying it on a on a winter camp. It's really it's a three season tent. It's got lots mm -hmm. of ventilation, lots of room, and um, 
when it's really hot, you can just pitch the the inner. Um, so that's what I'll use like in the height of summer, the Hilleberg, it'll just be like an oven in, in the summer. You'd never cool it down. So that oh, those wow. are the two tents that I'm sort of settled on now. Um, my sleep system, I've got a few different sleeping bags depending on the uh, temperature and things, but the, the most common is a RAB Ascent 500. So RAB, I think they're a, they're a UK, but I can't remember whether they're Scottish or whether they're... Yeah, they're an I thought they were English. Um, I don't know. Yeah, I think they probably are English. And they're well known for their down equipment. Yeah. And I use a down bag called the RAB Ascent 500, which goes down, it's got a comfort value of about one degree, which covers okay. most of the camping that I do. I, I have a heavier bag, a heavier, thicker one, say if i do a camp when it's going to be minus five or something but in mm -hmm. general the rag one's my go-to uh, uh bag okay my sleep mat i use xbed which is again i think that's a u.s company um i don't know a lot of people use thermarest and that their outer two baffles are slightly greater diameter than the inner ones so it, okay. it helps reduce you falling out or coming out of the um the, the mat onto the cold ground yeah uh and the pillow that i use pillows are a real vein for me if i if i could i'd take my own yes. pillow from home me too gosh I've, I've never found a pillow that's that great but the, the one that i do use yeah that's the kind of best of a bad job is the uh trekology i think it's trekology luft pillow that's the best of, of the ones that, that I've found. Um, my backpack that I use is uh, Osprey. I don't know whether, I can't remember what, where, where they're made. Have you got Osprey in the US? Yes, we do. So they only make bags. So, you know, I had the view that if they can't make a good bag, then nobody can. You get companies like North Face that make good bags, but they also make clothes and shoes. Well, I, and I use their Osprey's cheapest 65 litre bag, which okay. is called the Rook 65. And over here, it's about 150 pounds, so $150 or so. And what I found when I bought that bag over the um, previous one that I was using was that the Osprey bag carried the load so much better. It, it, you can have your 15 kilos in it and it doesn't feel like 15 kilos. Osprey make lots of more expensive bags than mine with lots of extra features, but I'm not convinced that I would get the um, the, the benefit. You know, I could easily double them the 150 pound and of course. not necessarily get, get double the benefit. Certainly when you're starting, you you don't know how much you're going to do what conditions you're going yes. to be in and that sort of thing so you yeah. buy the entry level stuff key really is to when you're buying the entry level stuff is to stick to conditions that suit the stuff you've bought so right. if you've bought a 50 pound tent then don't go camping in winter in it camp when you know the, the weather's going to be good and then when you know you like it, you gradually crank up. I'm at the point now 
where the stuff that I buy tends to be very expensive. And part of the reason for that is that I know I like what I'm doing, but also yes. now I want the stuff to last 10 years. Right. I'm kind of trying to buy, you know, I've got these lecky walking poles. I had a pair that lasted 20 years. They eventually died. Wow. I bought another pair thinking they're going to see me out. If you like. and, and that's what I'm doing at, at, at the moment. But yeah, so those are my big three three nice. things some dead expensive some dead expensive <laughs> little combo so yeah. the next two questions i think kind of go together so what what is one piece of gear that you can't do without and that kind of goes along with your your favorite piece of gear mm, okay so one piece of gear that i can't do without is a map uh huh. But you weren't expecting me to say that. I was not, um, but it's true. <laughs> I, I, I like maps. I just, mm -hmm. just like I can sit sit at home, open a map up, have a nice time just looking at the map. Yes. So I just like looking at maps. And uh, when I'm hiking, whilst I use you know apps on my phone to show where I am, and I've got a um, a GPS based mapping thing mm -hmm. I, I try not to use them uh i bought the gps thing because i when i went walking i used to take my daughter to the lake district to to do a little bit of hiking and she she when she was four and five and i think age six she managed to go up a um two thousand foot mountain so she was doing really well but what i was aware of was i couldn't afford somebody of that age gets even slightly lost because yeah. i knew i was pushing her close to to the limit so i had mm -hmm. this gps thing and every now and again i'd stop turn it on check i was where i thought i was yeah just to make sure that i knew where i was yes. with the phone of course you get lots of good things on your phone now that can do navigation yeah. um but i use my phone, apart from a phone, I'm sitting in the tent watching a YouTube video. I'm using it to film my own YouTube video and I need the battery life out of my phone. You, you know, I don't want to yeah. be using it as a, as a GPS. Correct. So I like to use a map um, so that if all else goes wrong, I've got a map and I know how to use it. And um, I think, it, you know, that's one of the messages that all the mountain rescue teams come up say, don't just rely on your technology and funnily enough i did a my most popular video um that i did in lockdown we weren't allowed to go very far i, I hit and i thought hey, how am i going to keep my youtube channel going and i realized that not that many people know how to use a map and comfort that video has now got twenty-seven thousand views it's my most popular one by far and away yes it's, it's the, one of my favorites of yours inadvertent what well, i just went to the local park as, as you know but i recreated being in a mountain where you can practice what you're doing yes before you actually get there now for you it's a lot more complicated because you've got magnetic well you'd have in scotland you, you can ignore the magnetic variation but for you doing yeah. your walking in the u.s you you had to take pay attention to the magnetic variation part of that video but hopefully what i was trying to do is to show people it's actually not that difficult so take a map and take a compass so you're not relying on the the the, the, the gps 
Because if you get rescued here by the mountain rescue and you haven't got a map and compass, they're distinctly unimpressed. <laughs> <laughs> I'm if, sure if they get, get those lost, folks all the time. They do, they do. <laughs> but, but if you get lost or you slip and you twist your ankle and you've got all the gear, then they're perfectly happy because accidents will happen to any. Just to tell you a bit of a funny story to, um, you know, I know how to use a map and compass. And but when I first started um, mountain walking in particular, me and my mate, the, the one that I said to the one that I will do while camping with, yeah. we decided we were going to go up Scarfell Pike, which is the highest mountain in England, but camp at a tarn halfway there. So mm -hmm. we, we trolled off, got to this tarn, pitched our tents, feeling dead pleased with ourselves. And then there was a whole afternoon to go. So we thought, well, we'll, we'll go up Scarfell now. And we were too busy chatting and we we're following this path and we got to the top of a mountain and mm -hmm. thought it's a bit odd like that there's not nobody here for what's you know the most popular no. mountain in England and we had to look over our shoulder and a few hundred meters away but down a big drop and up a big hill there was all these droves of people <laughs> so we climbed the wrong mountain you climbed the wrong mountain, we were, but you were having a lovely time. Yeah, we were not paying attention. And the maps were put away, and we were just oh. following this path. And we hadn't noticed this very faint split in the path. I love that. And just that. followed this natural line. <laughs> so, so we had to descend like 600 feet and then climb another 600 feet back to where we oh, were. Oh, that's to do the, great. The, so, and and we you know we knew what we were doing and yet we still did that but it was because it was a nice day and we were having a nice yeah. time and you're just not paying attention and most of the time I get lost is actually on the way down you, you get so far down uh -huh. that you think well I'm nearly there now and you put your map away and then you end up at some road junction and you think that's <laughs> peculiar I'm sure I'm meant to be but once me and the same guy albeit with this time we'd done like a 20 mile walk in very hot temperatures well what for us is hot like 25 degrees oh it's lovely so for me it's <laughs> hot for us we got a little yes. bit of sunstroke and we we got to this road at, at the bottom and we thought well that this junction that that that's not on the map and we kind of oh, no. convinced ourselves the map was wrong <laughs> the map is wrong of course it is the stupid yeah, map. Survey, map wrong, yeah. <laughs> so uh yeah so so that involved a bit of a like a um a, a longer road walk at the end than, than we sort of anticipated so the 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 thing i'm kind of getting at here is even if you know how to use a map and compass if you stop paying attention it's very easy yes. to um to make a mistake but usually you're you know, when you're high up, you're paying attention. It, it's it's yes. a bit later on when you think it's all over um, that, that, that you make the mistakes. I have to thank you for that video because I had not used a map and compass since I was a child. And mm. when I started getting, you know, more heavily into hiking and backpacking and stuff, um, I knew it was a skill that I, I needed. And so your video actually helped me out quite a bit. I'm still not the best navigator. I'm I'm still learning. Um, but your your video is what really 
kind of pushed me into honing my skills and I, I learned a lot from it. So thank you. Good. Yeah. So what is a piece of gear that you have been eyeballing something that you are looking that you want to add to your, uh, your kit? Yeah, that's, um, as you know, you're always looking for the next bit of kit. Yes. No matter what you've got, you always want the next bit of kit. Yep. And, um, the thing that I'm probably after is a, a wider version of my sleep mat because oh. you, you can end up like with your arm hanging off and, and you, yes. your arms really, and when you realize that it's on the, 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 the cold ground. Mm -hmm. And I noticed that, you know, Xbed do a, a wider mat. Um, okay. It's got insulation in it that will go down to about minus 10 degree temperatures, which is perfectly well within my mm -hmm. sort of scope. The reason I hadn't bought it yet was I wasn't sure whether it would go inside Edinburgh <clears throat> Solo because that's oh. not the biggest tent in the world. I didn't want to buy this mat <clears throat> really for cold weather use and find I can't use it in the tent. But yeah. I saw a video from a guy a couple of weeks ago who hasn't been on YouTube for ages and he randomly put one up and he, he had a white an extra wide brilliant ray I says I've been waiting to find out whether this I can put a wide mat in the, the solo and he Yay. said yeah he said I've never been without a wide mat you because the, the problem with wild camping that you don't really appreciate until you've done it is it's very rare that you actually get a perfectly flat pitch yes usually there's a slight angle to it so you, you're constantly kind of moving sliding <laughs> along or around and off the blinking mat and whilst you can still be reasonably comfortable on a slight slope if you keep falling off your mat all the time it keeps waking you up so the idea of having this wide mat inside the tent means it doesn't matter where you where you end up you're still going to be protected by the mat i want to hear about it once you get it you'll have to put a video up yes yeah i will do yeah yeah it's the sort of thing i'll probably do a, a review of final thoughts do you have a dream shot that you would like to get um and what are some of your astrophotography goals yeah the i'd like to get the northern lights that's my kind of you, you know main uh goal for me and like i say i might be forced to go to norway or go to iceland or something for it i might be lucky and, and get it here uh, I might be lucky when I go to climb Ben Nevis. You never know. It might be a clear night. You never know. But that's a goal because, because I can, you know, I could do it on a, say, going, and you get a lot of people here, go on a cruise to the Norway fjords to see the Northern Lights and stuff. Yes. So you can do that almost at any age. So that that's just something yeah. I'd, I'd quite like to do. Um, some of my other astrophotography goals are, are geared around um some of the targets in the milky way that i can't get from my back garden here they're just okay. too low down so i i need need to go somewhere that's dead dark with some kit that i can do it so the thing with astrophotography is it's um it's a kind of lifetime hobby because there's so many things to photograph and so little clear nights with no full moon that you can actually don't have to get up for work the next day that there's a lifetime's worth of stuff that that you could do you never get get to the end of it but I the northern that. nights really is my main goal 
I'm excited to see those shots. What do you wish everyone knew about the outdoors? I'd say how peaceful and largely safe it is. You get, I know you get city people and, and, and outdoor people and city people don't like the outdoors. They're kind of scared of it. Um, and I think, well, particularly in the UK, there's nothing really to be scared really? of. I mean, a few walks that I would say people shouldn't do, but, but the vast majority of the, the outdoors in the UK is so safe and pretty. Yeah. And I think people, people miss out a lot. So, yeah, how, how safe and, and peaceful it is just to be on your own for a little bit, which, again, is a concept often people aren't sort of familiar you know they're not on their yes. own very often uh, it's and it's quite empowering sometimes to be on your own and think well i did this and i was all on my own i didn't need any help from anybody i just managed to do it i think that's so good for your um your self-esteem and and your resilience to any problems that, that you may come across uh, in life absolutely good life lessons i love that this is the time in the show where you can plug your social media. Um, what is your Instagram? Talk um, about your where they can find you on YouTube and any upcoming projects or anything that you might want to talk about. Yeah, okay. So, um, yeah, my YouTube channel is easily found. Uh, if you type in the camping astronomer, um, you immediately get me at, at the top of the page. Um, so it'd be, be great if if you can have a little wander by my channel, see the sort of things I do. I've got about 150 videos, 150, no, probably maybe 120 videos up at the moment. Wow. Um, a weekly, getting enough content yeah. for that. So now what I do is I put one up typically every two weeks and I alternate one week will be a, a walking one and then the following video will be a usually an astrophotography one um, the sort of things that i've got lined up hiking wise this year is uh i've mentioned the fan dance uh, selection march that's probably going to take i'll probably do it in late june early july because I, I want a lot of daylight just in case it takes me 15 and hours <laughs> <laughs> where is that again that's in in the brecon beacons in wales okay okay i do a lot of walking there. i actually know sections of that walk anyway i love wales. i've never actually attempted to do the um the selection marks that, that, that they use uh, so that that okay. will come up this summer um the ben nevis one will be in the winter okay i've got a bike packing trip that i want to do again this summer um, oh, where? Oh, probably a relatively large. I shall ride for like 60 miles from my house, camp somewhere. Um, okay. So I need to do, do the logistics for that. Um, I need to test out this lighter weight tent that I've got. It's a Terra Nova laser oh. something tent, I think. All um, right. So, so the, that will be good. But I might chicken out and go in one of these camping pods and have a night of luxury instead. The, the the one that I found is um not too expensive and it's uh part of the youth hostel YHA the hostels association yeah here. Uh, 
that they've gone right up market now. You can get food there, all sorts of things. Oh, yes. And I've noticed that a few of them have these pods. So that's something I, I may well look at. Uh, on the astrophotography front, apart from if I'm lucky and I've got a nice northern light shot, I want to do a nice shot of the Milky Way over an illuminated tent. I've had oh, a couple yeah. of goes at that, but I've been pointing in the light pollution direction. So it's worked mm. okay, but not as well as I want. And other than that, um, I want to do some nice wide field shots of the sky just above my house, um, just so people can see, yeah, th this is what's there from your back garden. So that's my YouTube my instagram i've really largely ignored instagram uh, i just I discovered your instagram it, it, this is it it's um i thought maybe i'll start putting a few a few more bits on there it's got a mixture of um definitely some of my astro photos a bit of my cycling i don't cover cycling much in my um youtube channel but i might just chip in some some cycling content i don't want to like water down what i'm trying to do too much but mm -hmm. um it is quite a big part of my life really so i always put a few bits in um the, the instagram uh, how did you find me on instagram out of interest um i believe it was searching your was it your facebook i found you that on facebook yeah and I think because Facebook and Instagram are connected, I, I had searched for you once before and couldn't find you. But I don't think it was until I saw you on Facebook that I, I was able to find the the Instagram. Yeah, Maybe um, do you put it in the text of your videos, like at the in the text part description no, no, box? I probably should do because um, I think Definitely. my Instagram something like John D Middleton eighty six or something. If you search for that, I think I I come up. Um, okay but it's not something i've been pushing too much but i do think i'm probably missing the boat a little bit on on instagram yes with the pictures and everything nice, it's quite nice to put nice pictures up and twitter i don't really bother with i go through it just to see what people are doing but i'm not not really right. um on twitter well john i know it's gone well over an hour i appreciate you I, i'm sure I, taking time i can talk freedom <laughs> i can too i love chatting and i love chatting with people who have similar interests it's just you know it's really nice um so i really really appreciate yeah, no, you really taking nice. the time yeah that, that, that's all right well i've enjoyed listening to your other podcasts so i shall keep uh on, on top of those as well so uh, yeah no, have a good time when you come over to the uk you you, you have picked a couple of really good areas um, I'm excited. So, yeah, yeah, you, you're going to have a fabulous time, I think. Well, thank you so much, John. I really enjoy talking to you. I enjoy your YouTube yeah, so yeah, much. I really like it. Well, thanks Yay. very much for having me on. I really appreciate it. Thank you. <laughs>